is started. Well, maybe it's like Casey says, fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, though. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. You're listening to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. From sports to gardening, from good food with close friends, to great music and movies. Provided by your hosts, Cody Stoffer, the reluctant Gen Xer, and Craig Morton, the token baby boomer. These guys are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but they will be entirely by accident. episode 3.12 where we're going to answer some deep philosophical questions like if three podcasting gentlemen sit down to record but the record button isn't pushed did it actually happen whoa whoa there's another great mystery that we've got to approach she's one of the next episodes though (laughs) that's what oh wait we'll try to tackle that yeah the next the next one we better tackle how to fold a fitted sheet So I may have let it slip a little bit. I said three folks sitting down for podcasting. What does that mean, Craig? I I don't know what you're talking about. I was gone getting my tea. (laughs) Uh, I said uh, in the little intro there, I said something about three guests, but we don't have three hosts. We don't have three hosts, do we? Well, do we? I don't know. Do we? Are we middling? Are we? we, we, We're not minimalizing. We are maximalizing. We're maximalizing. Run a search to find the things that spark joy. Ah! Three minimalists add together. Who was that? Is it all minimalists? <laughs> Speaking of fitted sheets, Craig. Speaking <laughs> of. <laughs> the person I want to introduce to you right now, I can, I, if I were to bet money, I would put money on that he knows how to fold a fitted sheet. I would put money on it. And his name... First of all, my name is Cody Stauffer. I'm the reluctant Gen Xer. I'm Craig Morton, and I don't want to claim that I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> and the third voice that you heard a peep from is none other than the Millennial Rebbe. The Millennial Rebbe. Millennial Rebbe. That's awesome. I love it. Rebbe is another word for rabbi, and that is Marty Solomon. Marty is president of Impact Campus Ministries. Used to be. Used to be international? Is that right? No, that's a that's a bygone era. That's oh, another legally another organization. <laughs> but where we no. have our roots. That's where they got their roots. Okay. Marty, do you know how to fold a fitted sheet? Well, yeah. The greater question is once you fold it, how do you stack it? Because the way to fold it is obviously we all know this. You tuck the corner 
corners into the other corners. Pick your two corners. You, you tuck those corners in, and then you have to fold all that excess into the square box necessary, and then you can continue with the folding. The problem is, is now that sheet is smaller than the previously folded non-fitted sheet, which can be solved by folding that sheet differently, but now it just seems like we're in a ridiculous place in life. So what I do is I just take that fitted sheet and stretch it out, hold it, fold it, and then fold it in quarters, and it's got this lumpy now bottom half with all the elastic corners are all sitting no. in one spot. No. You take those, and you lift those over. Yeah. And then you... That you just carefully keep folding until you mash that wad of corner elastic Ugh. parts flat. Ugh. It works. I, I can Craig, show you. And if you stack enough towels or linens or other things on top of it, it looks really flat. Craig, up to this point in our experiences together, I had pegged you as the wise one of this group. Uh, you know, I choose the things that I will be meticulous about. Ah, there's wisdom there. There's wisdom there. There is. Choose your battles of meticula meticularity. Meticulosity. <laughs> what? Yeah, what is the word? Uh, meticulousness? I think those words are getting too big for us. Uh, I'm start yeah, I am starting to get a little itchy. So. <laughs> I can tell I'm getting a little allergic there. All well, right. Can I tell you something really, really sad? Yeah. Oh, Craig, do you have a sad story? I do have a sad story. I mean, one of the, part of the, the lead into the story is like the saddest story ever told. I think it was, was it uh, Hemingway who said uh, the title for the saddest story of ever, you know, ever? I think it's like, what is it? Four, four words? Well, yeah, he's a, so he was challenged to write the saddest story in five words or less. Right. And it was uh, baby, sh uh, for sale, <laughs> baby shoes used. Uh, never, baby never worn. Sale. <laughs> baby shoes, I said, baby shoes for sale. Never worn. Never worn. Yeah. Yeah, that's sad. That is sad. So my, so my, seven, daughter, I think it's my seven, older right? daughter is moving to Mexico. Oh, well, that, okay. And, and, and several years ago, I gave her a set of fishing rods because yes. she loves to go fishing. Uh -oh. Right now, because she's moving to Mexico, she's selling everything <sighs> so she can just get away, which yeah. is pretty cool. I like yeah. that. Yep. And she posted on Facebook, fishing rods. Uh-oh. For sale. Uh-oh. Never used. No! Craig. Oh. Broke my heart. Broke my heart. Oh, Craig. I no longer want to be on this podcast. I'm going to have to leave. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's I'm recovering that. from that. I'm going to join uh, a bereavement group. <laughs> well, is it, why? like, uh, did she... Okay, Craig, let me ask you this. If you gave yes. her the rods, how yes. come you didn't take her out so that she could use them? She lives in Boston. Oh! She's not a Patriots fan, is she? She's not a big football fan. All right, all right, all right. All right. She's a wicked of a Red Sox either. fan. She, she doesn't know who the Bruins are. Oof. <laughs> I mean, uh, like the UCLA Bruins? Like the UCLA Bruins or? No, the real ones. <laughs> yeah, they're the real ones. Um, yeah, speaking of the Patriots, Marty, my word. Talk about a team that continues to give people reasons not to like them. Nope. <laughs> Jeez. Did you see the news today? I've seen the news. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> okay, let's not talk. 
Were, were you were you a Patriot fan there, Marty? No, no. Oh, oh okay. goodness, oh. no. The... He's a Bengals fan. Oh, lonely man. <laughs> it, it, this is like the one day, finally, in Marty's life that he can with pride say, I'm a Bengals fan, not a Patriots fan. That's right. He's I, earned it. That's good. That's good. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we won't talk about it. We'll brush that under the rug. You know, human trafficking. I think, I think, and, I think they've been trying to do that for a while. <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, yeah. Hey, uh, somebody mentioned the Red Sox. It's, you know what happened yesterday? The first baseball game of spring training was played. And you know what else? You know what it did in Phoenix yesterday? It snowed. It snowed. In Arizona. My, my niece put a picture up, and there was snow. That's crazy. 31 inches is what I heard. Well, no, 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 but not in Phoenix. Oh, well, maybe in Flagstaff or something Flagstaff like that. Flagstaff had 31 inches. Phoenix, had, Phoenix actually had, they said, one inch on the valley floor. Whew. Growing up there, I never saw snow on the valley floor. That is insane. That is. Las Vegas got six inches or something like that. Crazy. Crazy. And we, and we can't begin our track practice today because there's two inches of snow out on the track. <gasps> so we get you of unlimited time. No, I still have to go there at a certain time. We're going to work out inside the building. Oh, okay. Uh, track coach never sleeps, especially during spring. Oh, man, talk about not sleeping. I had insomnia. It drove me nuts, but I'm hanging in there. Hanging in so. there. Hanging in there. Right, when's your daughter moving? Uh, in March. In March. In March. And okay. it's a small town about three hours, I think it's three hours, south of Cancun. Oh, boy, rough. And it's just, it's, it's on the beach. She showed some pictures when she went down there to visit once before of her swimming with dolphins. Not like at a dolphin park where they have dolphins ready for you to go, you know, abuse. These are just, I guess, wild dolphins hanging out. What? what she's going to swim with my, wild dolphins? Yep, yep. Holy macaroni, Mr. Marconi. That sounds like fun. <laughs> that does sound awesome. Anyway. So, but she uh, doesn't like swimming. That's the other part, though. That's kind of sad. I ruined her for the ocean. Uh, I taught her how to go boogie boarding. She rode that boogie board in. It got a huge wave. It just kept going, and she didn't know how to stop the thing. Yeah. And she went the, – the wave was really high and went between the first and second rung of the uh, lifeguard station chair. You know how they mm -hmm. sit up on towers? Yes. She was headed right for that tower, and she was just freaking out. She didn't know how, she didn't know how to put the brakes on the, um, on the boogie board. And the water was, you know, driving her right to that ladder, and she thought she was going to lose, you know, her life, her six-year-old life, whatever it was. She was panicky. Mm. But the water then lifted her up, and she went right between the rungs. <laughs> that's insane. I think that's called... Um, that's What is that called? I don't know. <laughs> I don't it's know. It's cool. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. <clears throat> well, uh, guys, let's... Uh, I think it's... Uh, that's enough pitter-patter. Let's get at her, huh? <laughs> that sounded weird. <laughs> um, let's talk a little spring. Because, listen, we are, Marty, what's it like up there in Moscow? Like right now, here, down here, we are like, we, January, it was 50 degrees. Down here, it was sunny. It was like why people live here in Lewiston, Clarkston, because they're like, yeah, we don't get any snow. And then, bam! What is it, the bam! banana belt? Crumples, bumples, bliggity blue. We got like six inches of snow. Yeah. 
And so you're asking me what it's like where I'm at? Yeah. Like 20 minutes north of you? <laughs> but it's always different in Moscow. That's See, that's supposed to be the thing between up sure. there, down well, here. Yeah, we're, at like a low, we're at a low elevation. So No, it's true. We had a staff member, what we hope is a future staff member, supposed to fly in. Yes. I left for Boise on a business trip. Yeah. The next day she left to come to the Palouse. Could not fly in. Could not fly in could not fly in, I actually beat her to the Palouse at the end of my trip Ugh. just because I fly into Lewiston. So That's right. Oh, wait, man. I th- wait, 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 wait. I thought flights from Lewiston were gone. No, no, no. To Boise. No. Oh, to Boise. Sure, I have to connect to Salt Lake. Oh, gotcha. But is it this worth is it? This what our podcast listeners tune in for right here. This, <laughs> this kind Flight of tips. Flight tips. So you Flight have to tips. go to Salt Lake City, then up to Boise? Yeah. Is it worth it? Better than driving the same amount of time in a car the entire way in this weather, yes. That's true. I guess you know it's true what they say. The juice is worth the squeeze. Yes. But to answer your original... Oh, boy. Hold on. <laughs> Let that sink in. Profound things <laughs> might be said. They will be by accident. And then there will be the other things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if I look outside my window, there is a lot more snow than you guys have down there. That's for sure. Probably, probably. But, okay, so that makes me think, man, like, is spring ever going to get here? I don't know. Because we got Lent coming up. We're going to talk about Lent. We've got, uh, and, and I, I'm not kidding you guys. Like, last week, I swear, I swear, I heard robins. Oh, and yeah. That's, and that's usually a sign that spring's supposed to be here. But look, how is it going to happen? I saw, I, today I was, uh, where was I today? I was going by, oh, yeah, I was going to Fred Meyer. And there were robins sitting outside, crouched up against the building, trying to stay out of the wind. They're like half a dozen of them, all fluffed up their feathers as full as possible to stay warm. It's like those robins were like, you know, we, we should have stayed in Nevada or, you know, someplace else. Ugh. I think, exactly. I think they feel bad for them. North. I feel bad for them. I also, I also get a little, uh, during like right now, we're supposed to be getting warmer and around here. That means springtime, we can do things with our neighbors that we yep. a little more. And I'm missing that because typically by now our church has some stuff that we do and we're not able to do them because everyone's well, all like sheltered. Is over and people start coming out of their caves and seeing yeah. each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I miss, I miss that. That'll happen though. Ugh. Feels like it's never going to happen. What hey. I do is I keep walking around the yard looking at the, at looking at the dirt of what should be my garden, wondering, is it ever going to thaw? Garden. That's right. Yes. And we had like, that's one example. We're supposed to be like our gardening team. We have a, a community garden in the church on the church plot. Right. And uh, they're supposed to be meeting and, and discussing plantings and stuff like that. And I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, so I want to I want to get get started on my garden. I get I get garden magazines, and the garden magazines they, you know, they never show the picture of snow covered uh, gardens with frozen mud. They're always nice little sprouts and seedlings and blue skies and green grass. Yes, it feels like false advertising. Marty, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, you know, the thing that you need for a good gardening. What? You need bees. <laughs> bees are awesome. Talk, tell me about bees, Craig. You interviewed somebody about bees. I interviewed somebody about bees. You're welcome for that segue, by the way. <laughs> that That's why awesome I'm here. Segue. That was as smooth as possible, you saucy mink. It was sweet as honey. What? It was sweet as honey. Sweet as honey. Nice. So talk yeah. to me. Okay, his name's Preston. What do you, yeah, Preston, what can you tell us about Preston? Preston Porto 
if I'm pr- pronouncing his name correctly, it's it's a French last name. Yeah. But he's a he's a pastor up in Alberta, and he's done. Yeah, he's tried to take you know missional theology and move it in in other kind of unexpected directions, and and he started meditating kind of or you know contemplating his his bee hobby, and yeah. so he raises bees. He has a couple of um, those bee boxes out in his backyard. And he was talking about how they survive in the Alberta winter. Now, I interviewed him back in, I think, November, December. But he was already talking about sub-zero temperatures. What happens and to his bees during sub-zero temperatures? They hunker down. Okay. They I don't mean, there's, die? There, there's, some, there's some bee loss, but they, they all kind of crowd to the middle and try to insulate themselves. But when he first got the when he first got the bees going, he had neighbors come over to him and say, "How dare you bring these dangerous creatures into the neighborhood?" Mm. And, and at first they were considered to be pests, but at the end of a year or two, uh, he tells a story how people were talking about, "Hey, you know, I had more apples this year than I ever had before," or "My flowers look better than they've ever looked before." Do you think it might be the bees? Ooh. And so he, mean, he took time to contemplate on how do we, you know, move out among our, our neighborhoods, right. the places where we live, yep. you know, and make some positive differences. How do we become curators, I think is the word he uses, a, you know, a curate in the neighborhood. I love it. And it's not, it. not parish kind of thought of in geographical bounds, but it's this parish based on these relationships of interaction. I love it. So uh, he's a pastor. What's the name of his church? Uh, some cold church in Alberta. Okay. <laughs> nice. Aren't they all though? I think anyway. They are. <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Okay. So, so we have a, we have a link for his book, I believe on the, uh, we'll have, we'll have it on the, uh, podcast page. And, um, it is the bees of rainbow falls. Ah, the bees of rainbow falls. That sounds cool. I love that. Yeah. I love this idea of how this helped him connect to the community. Love it. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people are trying to find ways to do that are really, really kind of unobtrusive. It's not a really big deal, but it starts small because of contemplation about how can you, you know, reach out and get to know more people. I had, I saw you on, on Facebook earlier today, Cody, that you, uh, a mutual friend of ours was like, how as an adult do we make friends? Yes. You know, I wanted to ask you guys that. How do you make friends? We owe you, you, you act like a bee, I guess. <laughs> so Craig and I both listed, uh, going to trivia night as, uh, as an idea. Marty, you got any ideas? How do you make friends or do you just isolate yourself? Yeah, as a raging introvert, I'm trying to figure out why in the world you would want to do that. <laughs> we need more of those. So, not, not a Rebbe, that's for sure. So I, I love going to trivia night just to watch the other people act extroverted. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Craig, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I am an introvert. Cody, are I, you an extrovert? I, or an extrovert? I'm, I'm an extrovert. <laughs> So, uh, I, I have my moments of introversion, of course, but I do get energy from connecting, connecting and being out and about and all that stuff. So, uh, anyway, so we, we do have that, that, so that interview will be coming up, uh, on the podcast. Let's listen to it right now. We call them cool. Those hearts that have no scars to show. The ones that never do let go And risk the tables being turned We call them fools Who have to dance within the flame 
Through chance of sorrow and the shame That always comes with getting burned But you've got to be tough when consumed by desire Cause it's not enough just to stand outside the fire Hello, Preston. Uh, this is Craig, and you're uh, you're our guest on the All That's Holy All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Sometimes I can't even say the name of our podcast because it's a mouthful. Uh, but uh, it's good to have you with us, and would just like you to take a little bit of time, Preston, to introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, yeah. My name is Preston. I'm in Chestermere, Alberta. My neighborhood is Rainbow Falls. And uh, I'm one of the pastors at Lake Ridge Community Church here, a pretty new church plant in, in this little slice of suburbia here in Alberta. I have, uh, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of different things. I teach and write and think all about na- neighborhood. This is, this is the area of my, of, of my passion and uh, so really happy to be here visiting with you today. I appreciate that. So, so you're, you're in suburbia. I am. I am. I think most anything here in in Alberta that's being built around Calgary or Edmonton can easily be defined as suburban sprawl. And yeah. uh, you you're free to judge that as no, much. No, as you no, want. no, no judgment. <laughs> in fact, I'm so happy. Uh, you know, in, in church uh, development, church you know evangelism, outreach, church, new church growth, all that kind of stuff. It's always focused either on exciting urban ministries or you know, rescuing these uh, dying rural churches. Very little is talked about the suburban life. It seems like it's kind of, to me, it seems a little bit like the unwanted stepchild. Uh, well, and, and, and in some ways, I mean, there, there's days where I, where I covet being in a cooler place in a sense. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I do want to look out over an, an ocean or, or right. over a beautiful skyline. Uh, but here I am looking over duplexes out my back door and some larger houses out my front door and our house is somewhere stuck in between. And, and, and I think, I think I never really imagined that I'd be in suburbia. My, my wife was, she was a missionary over in Africa and dreamt that she would be living in a mud hut some, somewhere at this stage in her life. Uh, right. I, I, I wasn't sure where I would end up, but it definitely wasn't looking over a bunch of gray homes. But, but this is, this is what, what I realized was I realized that the problem wasn't suburbia. The problem was my perspective on it all right. and, and the perspective of the people living here and that God's very much doing something here. And so my perspective has changed drastically. And uh, not that I love the shape and form of suburbia, but I really do love the people and, and these places. So. When when I first got out of seminary and I was thinking about where I was going to be, it was either be on a, a college campus with all the great new ideas and all the diversity, and and then that didn't work out. The campus pastor. And then I thought, oh, I'll be uh, pastoring in some place like Philadelphia in the city and someplace exciting. And I ended up going to rural Kansas, <laughs> and I learned how to appreciate vast flat prairie. Yeah. And then I thought, well, okay, God, you can send me to urban areas or to, to the rural countryside. I've learned to appreciate agricultural communities. And now I pastor exclusively in suburbia. And it's like. <laughs> it's so funny. Well, I, I, I pretty much grew up just down, down the road uh, a few kilometers. And uh, when you grew up in a, in a particular town, 
this is this is the 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 Alberta prairies here too. When yeah. you grow up, you you kind of say to yourself, "When I get out of here, I get out of here," and I'm going on <laughs> to something bigger and better. But this is but this is the interesting thing. Uh, I these are my people. I know right. the language. I know the last name. I know the way we what we value. I know where we get stuck. And in some ways, I think in some ways, I'm, I've just been sent back to my native um, people <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and we know and love, love each other. And it's, and it's now feeling almost generational. And I think that there's something prof- profound about that too. I think there is. And that's something that I think sometimes gets lost in some of these conversations, but about, about suburbia in it itself, it's, you, you described how it's just the view from your house. You know, it's, it's not, it's really nothing romantic or adventuresome. It's very mundane, but, on the other hand, it's filled with people. I mean, that's where people sure. are. Well, I teach, I teach courses in biblical geography. And, uh, and as I've traveled and studied in the Middle East and learned about these places, uh, we romanticize them now. But, but actually, the biblical story was written in a pretty, pretty banal kind of place. It was uh, these, these were the suburbias of, of their, their day in some ways. These were small little village towns with people that knew, knew each other over generations. And, and uh, and we sometimes think that, that, the, that the biblical story was born in some Wizard of Oz place. And actually, the first time that I studied over there, I kind of had a mini crisis of faith because I was expecting to step through into, into <laughs> some sort of beautiful C.S. Lewis imaginary world of, right. of heavenly excitement. And it was just kind of hot and sweaty and dusty. And I thought, <laughs> this, this is so ordinary. There's no wardrobe. There's no portal yeah, to another right. world. Why would God have his most miraculous story in such a bland uninteresting place. Right. And uh, I mean, so I, that, that and many other experiences have just kind of made me reshape how I appreciate how God steps into our stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things you, you mentioned, uh, well, let, before I jump too far into it, tell me a little bit about how long have you taken care of bees and what I forgot, what is the, the correct name for a beekeeper? Uh, an, an, an apiarist. An apiarist. Yeah. So how long have you been in, doing apiaries i i have been i think this this might be my fifth or sixth season uh doing uh keeping bees and i keep bees in my backyard i have two beehives back there and uh and yeah we have we've started a a, the chestermere honeybee society and and we do a lot of beekeeping stuff here in our city so yeah so did you get into it just out of curiosity or was it something you had this lifelong desire hey i've wanted to do this and now's the time everything seems to be ripe and that's time to time to start something new or how, how'd you jump into that well i did it pretty much because i had a close to a mental breakdown actually i had, I, had oh, wow. I, I i'd finished my my doctorate and i'd read i felt like i you know read the whole internet i i just i just <laughs> finished reading everything and and my brain was fried i think my soul was a little bit fried and, uh, and, you know, you're supposed to come out of something like this renewed for ministry. And I was feeling kind of the opposite. Really? So I, I'm glad I, you told me that because I haven't <laughs> felt that way since I finished my doctorate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, so my, my, my wife's a very avid gardener. And so kind of like, like a lost puppy, I followed her to this, to this gardening event. And it was a, it was something called CD Saturday and they have, it's, I joke, it's kind of a bunch of young hippies meeting with a bunch of old ladies and they exchange heritage seeds. Like you really, like it's nerd level 11 in this, in this room. And there I, there I found some of my redemption. I, I met a beekeeper. Next thing you know, I declared, I'm going to get into beekeeping. And my wife said, why don't you get a book first before you bring home thousands of bees? Uh, long story short, I, I, I met a, a man who would be my, my beekeeping mentor for, for years 
Um, and, and, and he kind of like Yoda took me into the apiary into his, I care, I carried heavy things for him. I was just kind of his, his, his gopher. But what I learned was that he had a whole different posture and perspective on place and the value for green and growing and what bees do in a place and kind of at, at his shoulder, at, at his elbow, um, all the theological stuff I learned kind of went into its proper place in my heart and my mind. And the bees really saved me and really took all my doctoral work on missiology and all of that and, and, and landed it in this, in this really beautiful place. And so the sense of, yeah, kind of how I know what I know, this, this, this kind of epistemology, I discovered an epistemology of love in the apiary. And, and uh, I mean, I, I became, I nerded out to the maximum, right? Like, I don't think anybody could come within 10 feet of me without me saying, did you know this about bees? Did you know this? Look at what they do in our place. Look at how they impact our environment. Look at, look at the metaphors. That, and, and, and as I sat at the entrance, at the beehive entrance on my little bench, watching them come and go, my, my eyes opened up. And I think Jesus really took me to a beautiful place and, and really made me in the apiary. So I have, I have a deep love for what God does in, in uh, garden places. So one, of the, one of the reasons I thought this conversation would fit in Epiphany, because as I understand, at least the way I'm thinking of Epiphany, it's this continually un, continual unveiling or revealing of, of Jesus being present and in all of our spaces, just yeah. showing up. And and as I read your book, I, I was thinking in some ways about how the bees led you into other areas of community. Mm-hmm. But really, what you just described was even before that, Jesus just showed up in the bees. Yeah. God, God was present in something so simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that was a revelation. Oh, it sure it sure sure was. I mean, I I I think I think God often. Uh, I think we often believe the journey to God um, is this is this upward climb, and that somehow God meets us on the ladder and climbs with us side by side as we climb up. But I am learning actually that that perhaps the better metaphor is that God and Jesus is down in this kind of hard place. He's down in the garden, fingers thick with dirt and soil as he's amending soil and and making space for something to to grow and uh, fruit out and and i think that that he's inviting us down and so it was this it was this shift in in the direction i guess of my of my journey that took me down but not down into kind of filth muck and mire but down to real and alive and 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 verdant and i think right. in doing that i start i started to see my neighbors that i would just you know you you pass over you drive by you you just, they are incidental to my life. Suddenly I'm driving by them and I'm seeing them through a whole different set of lenses that I think were very much a gift from, from Jesus. So when, I'm just curious if this is, if this scenario plays out. Now, I, I don't keep bees. I love gardening. We have a, but we have this gorgeous plum tree that just, the bees yeah. just love. And I'm always curious when those bees leave my plum tree, where do they go? <laughs> and, and, you having a home for the bees, do you look at other people's plum trees and go, those are my bees? Or, or do, you see, do you see the flowering plants and the different things in your neighborhood and think, this is, this is all, we're all connected. We're all part of this ecosystem through my bees. Oh, no, I, th- I think you, you hit the nail on the head. My entire posture has, has changed. Instead of, instead of me coming to my place trying to b- bring ye old good news of, of Jesus, I'm stepping into 
into an existing story and um, and what's happening in my neighborhood as I as I look around I I've had neighbors come to me and say your bees are all over my trees and I say well <laughs> it'll it'll be okay uh, now all of my neighbors know differently but in those early years people would 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 come to me in a panic I'd say hey give it a few days because they'll move on to something else and so and this, what did they and, think the bees were going to do. Well, it's it can be a little disconcerting when you're standing under a tree buzzing with you know a few, with with a couple thousand bees. It's oh, like, I guess it, yeah. It can be kind of kind of noisy. But um, in the fall, one of my neighbors, Wilbur, he had come back to me after and uh, just with boxes full of full of apples. He said, "My my my tree has never produced apples." In fact, when we first moved to Chestermere and we said that we are gardeners, we talked to some folks and they said, "Well, yeah." Not only were people saying churches don't work in Chestermere, but people were saying the gar the ground is bad in in, in Chestermere. The, the something's wrong with the soil, or maybe it's too this or too that, or we don't we don't really know why. But things just don't grow here. You you can't grow fruit trees, and so so since our bees have been here, and there's a few other beekeepers that have started up since we we now cover our city with these pollinators, and they bring everything to life. And so you can now grow fruits and vegetables and all of that stuff just because of the presence of these bees and so the jump from that little metaphor to to the things we are talking about here today you can see that 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 it's uh that's pretty evident right so that's 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 amazing mm -hmm. uh, just for, both from the biological standpoint yeah. but also the power of these metaphors sure 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 and and yeah and so now we have we have people who have said you know you better not take your bees away or you better not stop having them here because right. because one of one of my my neighbors has raspberries and she absolutely loves making raspberry vodka and she's she has just said you, you know like without these bees I would not have this awesome raspberry vodka which is quite tasty <laughs> stuff actually so, but but this is this is the, the sort of thing that is that is happening is people now feel like they can grow something because because bees are going to pollinate and and the kids, I speak to about 400 kids a year about bees and so on. And, and these, are the, these are my little disciples going around town saying, bugs are good, growing's good, we can make this, this city thrive. And, uh, and so we, there's been a real cultural shift, shift here. And it's, and it's about saying things can grow here and we can do it together. So I imagine there would be a sense of panic if in, in your town, if all the beekeepers said, you know, we've, we've had fun. We're just packing it up. Uh, you know, we can, we can, we don't have to work for honey. We can just buy it at the, at the local grocery store. We're done. The community, it sounds like we could say, no, 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 don't take those away. Finally, my tomatoes produce, I get raspberry vodka. No, you can't go away. <laughs> well, now, and yeah. And, and, that, and that's, that's exactly what happened. Um, prior to moving here, I was in one town, nine kilometers down the road. We'd help plant a church there. That's just when I started beekeeping. I'd done my, my first season there. And in leaving, uh, that that is where this 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 neighbor with the raspberries had says, please don't leave, and she wanted to buy my bees off me because uh -huh. that's how much she thought that they brought such 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 a difference. And so I did pack them up and I moved here. But this is the thing, she didn't say to me, "I'm so sad you're leaving." <laughs> she said, I'm sad the bees are leaving, and that's really what got into my head when I moved here and said, one day I want it to be people say, not only do we love the bees because they make this place beautiful, but we love the people of God too. Right. And, you know, they're so vital to the well-being of our city that if the people of God ever left, what what would we do? Right. So, so how do you move that from being a metaphor to being an actual response that the city goes? What would we be like without these, without the the people of 
God here? Uh, how do you move in that direction? Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think what I'm, what I'm learning is that pretty much with, with, with a lot less effort than we think, to be honest. I, I mean, bees work all day when, when, when the sun's up, uh, they are going to, to town, but, but they kind of do what comes naturally and what's built into, to them. So we talk a lot about being made in the image of, of God here. It is, it is, it is quite a, core kind of language for us because we say we are already built with capacities to do God things in this world God has has made. What are those things? We are living generously, loving our neighbors, being present with each other, and suddenly you start opening up a, a, a world of spiritual practices that suddenly don't sound like they're a bunch of efforts, but, but they really come across as being, um, no, we are just exercising the practical things that our hands and our mouths would do um, if we were doing God things here. And so I speak, I speak encouragement into my, my place. I speak hope. I sit with people in their dark, dark times. And, and suddenly we, we have a small community of, of really activated pastoral people who are stepping into our place and paying attention to small, small things. And I think that's really all Jesus modeled. And so we are, we're, we're kind of doing a grand experiment and saying, we're we aren't a church full of big fancy programs. Uh, we don't have a building. We meet in a local, in a little, local gym to worship, but our practices throughout the week are being present, being faithful, being attentive. And Jesus really opens, opens up space for us to live out Jesus ways here. So do you find places where the, the bee metaphor gets in the way? It seems like such an effective metaphor, just everything you're saying, and we're going, this is an amazing thing, but, but yeah. like, well, bees sting people. Is there something there that, goes well wake and then they die i mean it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know well this is like yeah this is the interesting thing about stings a lot of people say how can you be a beekeeper if you get stung and 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 i say um why would i give up this most wonderful joy of being in the garden watching all these creative animals because of a little bit of pain right uh, i will i will gladly take a bit of pain in exchange for seeing something beautiful and being a part of that and and I think that that in, in, in that way the metaphor continues to hold hold, hold up for me. I I being a, uh, being a good neighbor is painful sometimes. There's right. times where I would, I just want to sit in my basement and watch Netflix for the next six hours, right? And and having a neighbor over or hanging out with a neighbor who's going through a hard time. There's days where I just don't want to. It'll just be too painful. But um, but in exchange for the pain of community, you experience the joy of it all. And so, I, I, I mean, every, every metaphor plays a particular role, but I think what it set me on a course is to pay attention to the small and the beautiful. And what I do in, 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 in my book is I it's actually take, take a little bit of a look back and see that this metaphor has popped up a lot throughout the history of the church, but it's not a very popular one. We would much, we would much rather have a metaphor that makes the church like some eagle or some great lion that's conquering and taking over and being big and shaping culture and all that. And, and in many ways, bees are the smallest of, of all these insects, but the impact that they have to create beauty as their primary purpose uh, is, is quite, quite profound. And so, yeah, I think that there's a lot. It's, it, I think in the book, you talk about that keystone yes. uh, aspect and uh, speaking, you know, kind of ecologically, there are those keystone species that without this species, so many other you know biomes or you know will just fall apart and, yeah. and and bees bees really haven't been thought of too highly until the last few years when there's just been this a growing awareness of a, of a honeybee shortage that there you know is there is there a parasite that's in them is there is a disease you know what's happening why is there 
why are there fewer honeybees? And all of a sudden they go from being this little bug that sometimes is an annoyance and, and people would misunderstand to now these things are vital. Right. Um, we, we had, we have uh, we have some wildflowers in our, in our front yard and the bees just love them. And I was asking my wife, why don't you do some deadheading? And, you know, why? Because she usually deadheads all the dead flowers. She's, I don't want to disturb the bees. Uh, I don't want to do anything to irritate them and make them think they're not welcome. And, and she, she's not really outdoorsy and garden type. And she wasn't just looking for an excuse not to garden. <laughs> she was just super aware of being cautious about bees. So wow. bees have become kind of like, I think they're, they're a great contemporary metaphor of this small, easily overlooked thing that actually is of supreme value for our su food supply for uh, yeah for our food for our survival um, yeah. well one one of the other keystone species and this this is a great canadian story but the um is the beaver is a is a keystone species and there's amazing books you would enjoy some great reading about about how beavers made the Canadian uh, landscape for millennia, um, lots of wetlands, lakes, rivers, streams, which of course makes home for all sorts of other animals. And then when, uh, when people moved in, into Canada, they, they moved across Canada and Hudson Bay Company says, we love beaver pelts. And so we got rid of all the beavers. And, and we, we, we have no idea how different the landscape is today as to what it, what it was. Um, but they speculate like 99% different across Canada because of what beavers did. And so, so um, now we only have today what, what we know, which is, which is lots of agricultural land, which is great, it feeds us. But, but I think we, we do well to say, what are the keystone people uh, in, in our systems, in our communities, in our country, that are actually the, the, the people holding a lot of the beauty that we enjoy together. And I think we're starting to see in a lot of our Western cultures, ways that some of those systems are eroding just because we some small things in our communities we don't think have a lot of value and we only um, pay attention to things that uh, feel quite utilitarian at the time right um, but now well, we're starting to change that yeah. in your in your book you do mention the importance of aesthetics mm -hmm. uh, yes. and, I, and i'm trying to remember where, where that section was but you set it off against another prevailing value that we yes. that we tend to move toward maybe it's you know it, whether it's you know economic value or some kind of uh, other sense of power but aesthetics in and of themselves the beauty in it in and of itself is a is a value that is often over, overlooked and, well, it's not, I, and it's not beauty for beauty's sake as i understand it it's beauty because beauty contributes something more holistically well beauty actually wake wakes us up the so we i've i've been experiencing that our culture here in suburban chestermere uh can often be anesthetized meaning um and we have a lot of great tools to anesthetize ourselves when when we experience pain or we want to forget something we have the tools at our ready offered to us every day to say here's ways of not feeling that anymore and the opposite of anesthetic is aesthetic which is beauty so we cannot overcome an anesthetized culture by just offering them something glitzier and fancier. Um, we cannot wake up a culture that says, I just, I just can't feel this anymore. Life is painful. The world's right. hard. But what we can offer, and I think Jesus offers it to us, is this picture of beauty and says, hey, we can, we have something to off, offer here to say there, there's a picture, a way of living uh, that can alert us to the goodness of God, alert us to the image of God in us and right. in our neighbor. And suddenly we see our neighbor and we're awestruck 
This is, this is, I believe, I believe if we're made in the image of God, man, we are around us every day are people who are just utter miracles and the height of God's beauty and creation. And yet uh, we just pass, pass by it. So something has to change. And, and I think beauty and the yeah. theological aesthetics is, is really a conversation we, we need to be having. I think that's a fascinating thing to bring up also, at least in my tradition, we tend to be very plain, or at least we try to be plain. Um, and it's almost, almost an aversion to uh, orchestrating beauty, sure. only because it seems a little, little boastful, little, little braggadocious, little you know, too prideful. But it's, it's. But if we don't get, my my hunch is, if we don't get the practice of trying to create beauty, we also lose the ability often to notice it. Right. Yes. And it's just surrounding ourselves with with processes, act, act, actions, things, ways to be to create beauty and ways to notice it. I love what you're saying about the beauty of the image of God in other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that means God is continually being made present, rather than some distant sure. idea. Sure. As 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 available as bees in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I I um. I often like to be the first in line to hold a new baby because this, because as a new baby, if we take seriously this idea that uh, people are made in the image of God, then this baby is a brand new reflection of something about the character and nature of God that no one's seen yet. And I grab that baby and I look them really close and I pray for them and I say, God, like show me more of yourself through this beautiful little person. And they're usually just a squishy ball of pinkness, but, but, but I love holding, holding them. But you know what? Yeah true beauty that I think reflects something of, of God's hand. No one walks by our garden, which is just bursting with, with life. My wife does an amazing job with our garden. There's all sorts of different textures to it throughout the seasons. No one walks by and goes, Oh, what a pretentious garden, right? Um, no one walks by a baby laughing and says, Oh, what is that noise coming out of that? <laughs> right. And the, or no one sits at our table when there's 20 people around it, having a wonderful meal and says this, 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 this is silly. These, these are all little foretastes of the kingdom of God. And the more we start to taste that and say, yeah, this is what beauty is about. Uh, sometimes fine art, I love fine, fine art, but sometimes that is even trying to just, just point at those even more fundamental pictures, which is, which is people and, and, and uh, creation. So, yeah. One of, the, one of the terms you use in, in the book, uh, The Bees of Rainbow Falls, is I think it's towards the end, you talk about being a curate. Mm-hmm. Um, could you define that term? Uh, what, what do you mean by, by curating? Or, or, or it was not curate, it was... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, a a, a uh, keeper. Uh, oh, it was in the actually. It's in the. I think it's in the cha- the chapter maybe on husbandry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Oh, curator comes from the Latin word cure, which means to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, we yeah. are we 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 are called bee beekeepers. Right. Um, my bees stay in my in my beehive because they are treated well, and and it's a safe it's it's a safe place. I can I can only keep it. I I uh, point back to you know the Garden of of Eden story. Uh, uh, Adam was called to be to call to keep the garden. Right. Um, but it wasn't one generation later that his two sons one kills the other and says to God, am I my brother's keeper, right? And so right oh, away, right yeah. out of the gate, um, they're already saying, 
I don't like this, this role. Being a keeper is not something that I feel like I should be doing anymore. And so, so begins the long, long steady wow. decline of, yeah. of people giving up this, this kind of really archaic call to be a keeper. So as I became a beekeeper, I started to kind of like reassess what it is that I am called to be. Am I, am I a keeper of bees? I'm also a keeper of my place. I'm a keeper of, 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 of my neighbor. They're, it's built into my DNA, into my calling as just even a human to be somebody who keeps the well-being of my place and my neighbor. Uh, and, and this is so fundamental. And I think Jesus then shows us what that looks like. You know, he, he, outside of Jericho, he meets a blind man and he calls Zacchaeus out of a tree. And I think, and I think these are the kind of images of, of being a so I was kind of playing off that sense of a curate, which is, of course, a term, a very old term, I think, that, that, that we often use for pastors. And, and, right. and I'm saying, once again, we need to adopt the sense of being the keepers, the caregivers of our, of our place. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting, just in the, especially just now as you're describing this, this uh, word keeper used in the Garden of Eden, and then as this rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, this idea of keeping, of, of maintaining, of holding something together, yeah. uh, fostering and you know, working for its goodwill and all that. But I think there's times where I've met a number of Christians who are caught up in not keeping or maintaining, but they think of their, the, you know, a primary role is destabilizing, overturning, you know, the, you know, making the kingdom upside down, the contrast of society. And, and all these things, are, are, I think, are vital as well but there's almost a dynamic between what is it that we maintain and hold? What is it that we seek to turn over? Mm -hmm. um, but, but just listening to uh, it, you speak about the, this role of keeping is it sounds so much more primary as mm -hmm. maintaining the relationships, uh, holding people together, seeing what's valuable and beautiful and, and maintaining that. And so, yeah, well, sometimes it just sounds so, mundane rather than triumphalistic you know <laughs> well i think i think um i've been i've been re reflecting on something that i don't even mention in the book that i've been building more and more recently but i think jesus said love god and love neighbor and i think that there is built into our faith into our church this this fail safe that if we only do half of this equation the love god part and I've been saying that I think that we have been coming as the church to the altar of the neighborless God. We have a God who does not care about neighbor and we worship that, that, that God, and we can worship on a Sunday, worship during the week, the, the, at the altar of the neighborless God. But then we become formed in the image of this neighborless God. We, wow. and we become neighborless ourselves. And in doing so, we no longer live and act as Christians, but we distort the image of God in us and in others. And in doing so, we no longer follow the way of Jesus. We follow another way. And I think neighborless Christianity has a fail-safe. It, it implodes because it's a hollow religion. Uh, and, it, and I think that it's good and that it should implode. I think fail-safes protect the integrity of what's good, beautiful, and true. And so, um, but I think that a horizon clear of the neighborless gods make room for God, make room for those who are made in the image of God, make room for you to meet God and make room for love for true love and the love of the father. And so, so there, there's this interesting thing that I think we need to, I th I'm more and more convinced we need to get back to loving neighbor right beside us uh, as the way to worship. I think God as, as he intends to be, which is the, 
the God of, of loving our neighbor, of keeping our, our neighbors. So just, just maybe as a word of warning, I think you should uh, put a trademark on the altar of the neighborless God. Uh, Cause I heard that and go, that's a great book title. <laughs> well, I, um, as, 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 as a little test piece, um, even right now on my computer, this is, this is the next book that I'm, that I'm working okay. on. So, right. so I'm glad to maybe test it out, out, out there. So. But th that, that is such a powerful uh, phrase. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, think, I think there, there are a lot of imp implications to our faith and church. Um, and so, yeah, these are, these are some of the areas that I think we really need to, to explore. And I think as, as I, as a Canadian, am watching what's going on in, in the States. Um, oh, please but, don't look. <laughs> but you, I think, need, you need to build a Southern wall just so you can't see what's going on here. <laughs> oh, we, we have our own cultural issues here, but I think, I think Christianity in the West has lost the sense of loving neighbor. And as a result, yeah. we no longer see Jesus and, uh, and so this is why I'm just utterly dedicated to saying, how do we love our real neighbors? Um, not just our, our coworkers and our family. Those are, those are easy people to, to right. re re reach out to. So, Yeah, it's, it's your actual physical, uh, geographically located mm -hmm. neighbors, the people who are on your street, the people who go to school with your kids. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, and that's in suburbia, it's, I don't know how suburbia works there, but I guess it probably works the same way everywhere. It's easy not to see your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 true. We, um, I think, I think Jesus built in the sense that we're supposed to love our neighbors. They are really the other. They're an other ethnicity, another language, and and um, I mean. Anytime I speak, and I speak across Canada about, about these things, invariably there's somebody who puts up their hand and says, but who is my neighbor? <laughs> um, uh, and I can't help but just chuckle because Jesus had people, like people want an out to say, can, can you define who I'm really supposed to be loving? And please don't tell me it's, it's that strange person who lives at the end of my block because I just don't think I can pull it off, right? Right, right. You know, one of the things that happens in our area, uh, living in the Boise area, the Boise, Idaho area, uh, we get really nice cold winters. Uh, I think we're almost directly south of you guys, mm -hmm. but uh, everybody kind of shuts down and disappears in the winter. And it's usually about March or April when people come out and begin digging in their soil and they're you know getting things ready. And all of a sudden people, it's like, it's like hibernation season is over and people see each other. They're walking on the sidewalks now, people on bicycles. And it's just such a, it looks so rich. It's like, oh, hey, hi, I haven't seen you for months. And it's, you know, your next door neighbor, but, you know, you just haven't seen them. And it's, you see this, this, this seasonal flourishing. And it's kind of, for us, at least, it seems to flow the seasons of the year. Uh, I kind of like that it's based in uh, the seasons because when it's dark and nobody's outside, and the sidewalks are icy, that's okay. It's time to hunker down. Totally, totally, and 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 I think that that it reminds us that of everything about our faith, our spiritual uh, walk, our spiritual formation is is seasonal, right? Uh, my apple tree really only produces apples uh, for a very short short time, but all that goes into it to have an apple, you need a flower. To have a flower, you need a bud. To have a bud, you need need a leaf, and every one of those things needs to be in in order and take it take taking it, its time. And I think this is why we as followers of Jesus need to slow down and enter into a rhythm that pays attention over the long so haul. So how cold is it outside right now? And what are your bees doing? 
Well, it is, it is white snow outside and, and it is pretty cold here to today. We can in the winter drop down to about minus 40 degrees Celsius, which I don't even know if that shows up on, on your American uh, uh, fair Fahrenheit, but, but it gets, it gets very, very cold. Right. Uh, uh, my, my bees, I wrap them up over winter and they just hunker down too. Um, but they are, there's a whole generation of bees that lives inside of a beehive over the winter. And uh, they're a generation that's born in winter and they die out before winter's over. They spend an entire winter fully equipped to see, hear, taste, fly, do all the things that bees can do, um, but they never get, get to, they never get to taste a flower. And for me, this has really wow. been a powerful metaphor because I think, I think people in my community, we are equipped with all of these God things. We are equipped with, with a brain, eyes, senses, all this equipment to bless and utterly change our neighborhoods and community. Um, but we've been lulled into this belief that really our equipment is for nothing more than just to hold ourselves together and uh, stay, stay warm in our little corner. And I think we're missing out entirely on, on, on what the um, human call is to, to join with what God's doing in the world around us. And so in many ways, I, I'm calling people not to be winter bees, that season's over, but to say, how do we emerge now? How do we emerge and use all the equipment we've been given right. to go out into the world, not to bring the good news, uh, but to be humans out there with, with God, uh, bring life to a place that is eager for it. There's kind of a beautiful, um, I would almost say humanistic, not a humanistic in like a contemporary atheistic sense, but the humanism of say like Erasmus or somebody like that, you know, uh, that there's something about the human being that is so wonderfully made where God's image shows forth naturally that, that, that human relationships demonstrate, they, they, they become the good news. We don't have to go announce, you know, all the time. We can just be, and God can be revealed through our lives together. No, it almost, it almost so. sounds like you're seeing something. You, it seems like you see something really beautiful about human beings being human. Yeah, well, I think so. And this is the interesting thing. So about, about half of our church is brand new to faith in Jesus. Uh, we, don't, we don't put out tracks. We don't, we don't do the typical evangelism because this is what's happening. And this is why I believe that this whole other half of love God and love neighbor, and we've only been paying attention to the love God part. We have seminaries right. full of books on love God. But guess what? When people come into being allowed to be human and then they're ex and then they're invited to love their other fellow humans love their their neighbor we should totally expect that god's spirit would be in that process and that something in the hearts of people would change as they do this very core um, thing called loving neighbor and so what happens is we see a whole bunch of people in our neighborhood they start loving neighbors and then they and then they suddenly announce yeah i follow jesus we're like yeah. where did you even hear that part of things right and uh, <laughs> And we are surprised at it because we have so devalued, I think, the process of loving neighbors that we don't believe that there's anything sacred or spiritual or wonderfully re renewing about it when I'm discovering the entire opposite is, is true. When people love neighbor uh, the way that Jesus showed us, suddenly God's spirit is totally present in it and, and, and profound things are, are happening. Uh, you can just walk around our little community and meet a whole bunch of people who who, uh, who are stepping into faith with Jesus just because they started loving neighbor. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's exciting. There's so, another book there too. So. Okay. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I, it, it's, there's, there's a, but there's just this beautiful, it's, it's not a technique. It's not about figuring out some process. Mm -hmm. It's just being a neighbor. And I think people sometimes find that overwhelmingly 
easy or overwhelmingly simple. I mean, we, we want something to have complex steps to know that we're actually doing something. Mm-hmm. And I know that some of the churches I work with, when I emphasize something as simple as you know neighborliness, it's easy for people to be, well, is that all? You know, well, should, I think, should we be doing this extra program on top of that? Or Yeah, well, I, I, I make the distinction between simplistic and simple and right, in between right. those two are, are complex is, is complexity. And I think that the church has done something called uh, like something very simplistic, which is an outreach program. And we're going to, I don't know, paint fences on Thursday afternoon or something and, right. and all that loving neighbor. Well, that's a very simplistic view because once you start bumping into neighbors, that's, that's complex stuff. You walk with people, you sit with people, you open your home, the, 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 the space dividing you and neighbors feels a little bit more fluid. And what do you do if you're afraid of that and you bump into real people and real things, you just shunt back to simplistic and say, let's just keep that as a church program. Right. And live my life. But I'm discovering that there's this other part and that's the simple of loving neighbor, which is through all, all of that, I'm learning to live life with my neighbors in, with, and for my neighbor neighborhood. And it's actually quite simple, but it took me, enduring some stings. It took me enduring some late nights. It took me running through, but I would never give up the simple process of loving and being with and among and for my neighborhood. Yeah. One of the things that also I just was thinking of, of this process of the simple loving your neighbor, it means loving the people who are in your proximity, the people you interact with, the people, and, and you don't have a goal set. Like, I, I, I want to make sure that, you know, they, they come to church or I'm trying to get them to have a particular action. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it, and I think that's where those, those programs, those outreach programs fail is they have an intended outcome. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem to work that way with people. I'm, I'm just not smart enough, frankly, to design everybody's <laughs> intended out, out, outcome, right? I just, right. I, just, I just can't carry everybody's um, future journey of faith and salvation or whatever on my shoulders. And Jesus actually never designed us to be that. That's we, right. are, we are simply called witnesses. And I think in many ways that just sends us out to say, uh, how about we practice the simple act of loving God and loving neighbor in real places and what that does is that actually gives me a really high Christology, a really high pneumatology. It really says, really says, I believe that God is actually able to do all the things in people's hearts. And uh, and boy, like the pressure's off. Like I can just That's true. Of, I can take a deep breath and just be a present pastor um, right. because I, I I don't have to manage everybody's sin. I don't have to manage. I can just go okay. Yeah. I can enjoy this. And actually, I I don't think that I've ever enjoyed being a pastor as much as I have being a neighborhood pastor. Um, it's, it's actually a delight. Well, I, one of the things that's great to hear is that, that you're happy about being a pastor in suburbia. Uh, I just, just, I, I just, suburbia just doesn't get the glory it should. It's a, it's a good place to live because a lot of people live there. There's a lot of people there. Well, we are, we are, we are starting to kind of call out this sense that, uh, you know, the longing for suburbia well, there, G.K. Chesterton said that um, everybody walking into a brothel is going in seeking God. And I think anybody that steps into suburbia going, I'm going to have a safe, comfortable home with a nice life, with a nice spouse, and we'll always get along and we'll have some great kids. We see a ton of divorce. We see a ton of pain. There's suicide here. There's yeah. all sorts of stuff happening here. Right. But what I do know is everybody here, deep down, their main motivation is they're really actually looking for for 
for God. And, and, um, and so that I have never yet been in a conversation here with somebody who is just like utterly against God. Like people are really eager to talk about uh, perspectives on, on bigger, bigger stories. So that's great. So we're going to, I'm going to wind up our, our conversation here, but there's, there's four or five questions we ask of all of the people we interview. Okay. And I didn't so, know about this, this, this part. So, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a, well, it's, it's kind of like a big test. Okay. <laughs> oh, the connection's breaking up. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, so it gets, it gets, I, I think you, I think you'll do okay with this. So <laughs> one of the questions we ask is uh, what are you reading? What are, what, what's something that's filling your mind? What are the kind of books you've got? You know what? The, I, I love anything by, by True Faced. I don't know if uh, guys like John Lynch and Bruce McNichol, they are just writing some of the most amazing stuff. And so it just came out, and I'm so jazzed for it. It is, uh, it is a devotional. It's called Trust for Today, uh, 35 Days of Encouragement, A Year with the True Face Team. And, and I got to tell you, I'm not reading it like a daily devotional. I'm just reading it from, from front <laughs> to back. Uh, they, they're all about authenticity, trust, high trust culture, grace. These are all things that are profound when you're stepping into a neighborhood uh, and being a neighborhood pastor is being a person of just deep integrity, trust. And, uh, and that, that's not something that I can muster up and pull out of my storehouse as some right. intellectual pastor. This is something that must come from my own heart being rooted into the person of Jesus, being beloved by the Father. And so that is what I... I, I really need. I, I, I love that. the excitement you had when I asked that question. It's like, oh no, I know the answer to this one. Yeah, it's, like, it's right here. <laughs> so that's cool. That's cool. Uh, so true face. I'll look that up. Yeah. Um, so the other question is: is well, what are you listening to? What uh, I am, I am listening to a Canadian musician named Steve Bell. He is just the most profound voice of Jesus in, in our landscape here in Canada. There are not enough Americans know about Steve Bell. He has been singing here for 20-some years, and, and his music is just like salve for the soul. And if I could just commend anybody to, read, to listen to Steve Bell, I would. I would All right. Read. I'll see if I can find something about him and put a link on our, on our site. Do. That's great. Please do. Yeah. Uh, one one of the resources I always go to for new musicians, at least new, depending on where we are, you know, uh, is uh, Noise Trade, mm. and I can usually find a bunch of free stuff for musicians who aren't known here in the states yet. Sometimes they're there, and so they're wanting to be heard. So it's a marketing thing. Yeah. I'll see if I can find that there. So, what are you watching? Oh, I am. I what am I watching? I just I just watched uh, the 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 film. Won't you be my neighbor? It is oh. uh, it is about Mister Rogers. I got a picture of Mister Rogers, Saint Fred the Neighborly here up on my wall as a uh, icon. But uh, yeah, something about Mister Rogers. I'm glad that he's that he's kind of making a bit of a comeback in our in our in our kind of popular vernacular because I think that that he represents something that 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 we need in the West right now. Is he is he beloved in Canada? I know he's beloved here. Oh yeah, we yeah yeah we all we all grew up with it because in Canada, growing up, we only had one channel and it was the CBC. So we definitely needed some some good old PBS stuff here too. So. Oh, that's good. Oh, he's 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 a dear man. Uh, was yeah. it was such a great soul. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so needed <laughs> uh, right now. So uh, oh yes, what what are you drinking? What would be your drink of choice? 
it might be raspberry vodka, but it might be something else too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no drink of drink of choice these these days. It is it is cold here, and uh, I've been drinking uh, Tim Hortons coffee uh, with triple cream in it. And triple uh, cream. Tri- I yes, I know dark roast coffee, triple cream. It is. It is too, too cold, so we always need a hot drink in our hand. <laughs> Sounds good. And so the last question we ask is, if we were to come by and you wanted us to have a really good taste of the best food that that, that area has to offer, where would we go eat? You would probably come and sit around my table. My We, we, just, we just love having people visit us. And uh, so come and sit. It would be pretty basic, and you'd have a – five-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old talk your ear off about things, um, but you would probably uh, walk away with, with more memories than if you went down to one of our box store complexes here. In, That's uh, an eight, awesome eight, answer <laughs> for somebody who says they love the idea of neighbor because it means hospitality opportunities. That's great. <laughs> you bet. You bet. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Hey, it's good to meet you, Preston. And uh, we're going to, like I said, this will probably be an uh, epiphany-themed series, and I'll let you know when we, when we put it up on on our podcast. That's great. So, no, this, this, this has been a treat. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So we'll stay in touch. I'll be look for, looking forward to seeing uh, what kinds of materials or ideas pop up from you in the future. You have a, you have a blog that you keep updated, I believe on your. Yeah, I do. My website is into the neighborhood.ca. Um, but, but I do write, uh, uh, I, I write a weekly column in our local newspaper, which is syndicated in different parts of Canada. And I think okay. it's in the streets too. And it's also by the same name, Into the Neighborhood. And so that is being run in a lot of different places. Does that show up on your website, the links for those different articles? Yeah, or? yeah all of that should, should be there for sure. Okay, great. So and do you have, uh, you have a Facebook page? I know that. Do you have a Twitter account or other ways yeah. to be involved with social media? Yeah, I do the Twitter. I have the Instagram. So my name is pretty much, yeah, yeah, Preston Puto, at Preston Puto on those uh, places. So Puto's I, unique enough. There's probably not another one. No, no, no. You will, you will find only a few of us. So That's very good. All right. Well, hey, blessings to you, and thanks for spending some time. This has been a treat. Thank you. All right. Bless Thank you. you. Take care. Yeah, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well done, Craig. What an interview. <laughs> How do you like them bees? 
It was, um, I, if I were to summarize your interview, I would say uh, it was VUCA. Good. <laughs> VUCA is a military acronym, which means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, we, we Mennonites are really short on our military um, acronyms. Oh, gotcha. Uh, can I tell you one of my favorite fantasy football team names ever in my many years of fantasy football leaguery? Tell me. Is, oh, no. the, is the Fighting Amish. That oh, yeah. The Fighting Amish. Yeah, well, Goshen College, uh, one of the men. Oh, there there was Indiana. one of those? Well, the Go Goshen College, they're right next door to South Bend. Okay, what's their name? Oh, it's the Maple Leafs. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Fighting Amish. No, but uh, several years ago, maybe. 20 years ago, maybe longer, yeah. uh, they, they, they came out with Goshen College, home of the fighting Amish, and it was that little, <laughs> that little leprechaun-looking dude from yes. Notre Dame. Yes, yes, and but with, uh, an Amishman, changed with like a long a beard. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the beard was the same, Oh my God. and so they put out all this stuff, T-shirts and stickers for the home of the fighting Amish. Did, it, did they call themselves home of the fighting Amish because they now had to fight um, trademark infringement? Is that... Probably, I don't know. That's a good one. I don't. I wonder what happened with that. That's but, um, but, but that fantasy football team we're speaking of probably yes. had connections with that historical. Maybe event. Marty. Marty was in the league at that time. Do you remember that name? I yeah, I do. I remember that. I didn't know which one you were going to pick, so I'm glad you went that way. Oh wait, what was there? <laughs> do you have other ones you remember? That's uh, not important now. Okay, hey, we're going to talk lectionary, right? <laughs> Let's talk about the lectionary. Oh, Marty is itching. Itching to talk. <clears throat> All right, fine, Marty. If you insist, enough of that. So, what do we got coming up in the lectionary? We're 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 jump jumping into Lent. We've got Lent going. It's a pretty decent season. Is it how many how many weeks is it this this year? Lent um, isn't it always the same? Is it always six? Yeah, I think it that's is. Right, that's right. Yeah, it is always six. <laughs> oh, it has to be you, the same because you got to get those 40 days oh you Anabaptists you're so cute hey we're new at this <laughs> Marty first before we move into Lent give us a quick take on your because I wanted to it was so good I, I want to hear it again your take on the transfiguration which leads into Lent a little bit uh, does it lead into Lent in your yep. lectionary yep does it? absolutely okay. I like that yeah um, Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that order. I <laughs> for a curveball here. Oh, do you need to wait a little bit? Do you want to talk about um, fasting first? No, it's all good. So transfiguration, okay. right? Starts yes. on this mountain, right? Yeah, starts on a mountain. We got a mountain with, uh, let's see here. We got, we got different things going on in this story, right? We've got, uh, we got a high mountain. High mountain. We've got uh, three people, right? We've got Jesus, and, yeah. or not Jesus, but we have the triumvirate, Peter, James, and John. Right. Mountain, right? Gotcha, gotcha. We have, a, we have a cloud covering a mountain. That's number three, right? Yes, yes. We got, uh, we got glory or people being glorified. Ooh. Right, okay. We have, we have a glory that literally in the language settles. Okay. Shekan is the word we're looking at here. Shekan, right? like Shekinah. Yeah, 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 okay. Uh, this happens, by the way, on the seventh day after the previous story, because it says six days later. Yes. Lead a ton of people to think that this happened on the traditional site, which is Mount Tabor. Okay, Mount but, Tabor. Uh, they're all wrong, in case anybody's taking notes. <laughs> this oh, happened the... on Mount Hermon, which is a whole other podcast, but let me tell you, Oof. 
But the reason why seven days is because, uh, oh, we got one more thing, by the way. God's speaking here. Yeah, of course. God's speaking. The voice of God. We have another story, Cody Stoffer. What is it? Where I found all seven of these elements. It's the story of Mount Sinai. Ooh, the giving of the law. Yes, we have a high mountain. We have three people, uh, Moses and Aaron and Hur, and we have the cloud covering the mountain. We have the glory. We have the glory settling on the mountain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we have it all happening on the seventh day. We have God speaking. And to make matters even better, if you were to read Luke 9, verse 31, in okay. some translations, it will even translate this word appropriately. Yes. Moses and Elijah show up to speak to Jesus about his exodus. Uh, brilliant. Brilliant. Why, why is that so brilliant? Well, it's brilliant because Peter's not an idiot. <laughs> And wait I a minute, wait a minute. No, no, I can't. No, no. Amen. Yes. No. We all know Peter is an idiot. He's nope. the foil. Peter wants to build tabernacles because he catches it all. Peter knows that the very next thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go down the mountain and we're yeah. supposed to build tabernacles. Right? Why? Why? Because it's ha- this is what happened in Sinai. We went up Sinai, we got the law, we came down. The very next thing after you get the law, off the bottom of the mountain, you build tabernacles. Okay, what, what, what does the tabernacle do, though? What's it all about? Well, it's about God dwelling in the midst of his people. Oh. But my point is, we always go, man, Peter, what an idiot. He's trying to like maintain the sanctity of some stupid moment. And he wants to hang out there forever and never go down into the valley. He's not a very good Protestant. And- <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have that work ethic. Yeah. Get about the business, Peter. But what's even juicier, if I can add one more little Jewish layer here. Oh, I like juicy. Even- What's even juicier is the midrash that yes. surrounds what I believe lays in the backdrop of this. There, is only, there are only two Jewish stories, midrash, midrashim. There are only two Jewish midrash about three characters being together, Messiah, yes. Elijah, yes. and Moses. Ooh. There are lots of stories of Messiah and Moses being together. There's lots of stories of Messiah and Elijah being together. But there are only two stories where Elijah, Moses, and Messiah end up in the same place, and one of them is our Gospels. <gasps> yes. Bang the ring, Rufio! Get out of here! <laughs> that means... You're killing me here. Uh, that means that we have one other Jewish midrash. One other Jewish midrash talking about these three characters together. And it's a midrash on... Uh, Psalm 42 and 43. Yes. Where they cry out. What? Uh, the, the psalmist is saying, I'm, I, I'm oppressed all day long. What do I do? Well, I cry out for truth and I cry out for light. Send forth your light and your truth, the psalm says. Let them, let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain. Ooh. By the way, little side note. Yes. What does Hermon mean, Cody? What does Hermon mean? Mount Hermon. <laughs> Why did you have to ask me this? It means I'll, I'll give you. I'll just. I'll just give you a shortcut. It means holy mountain. Uh, lead me to your holy mountain. By the way, in First Peter, Peter, who was on the mountain and said these things, yes, talks about this event. He says, "When we were on that holy mountain." Oh, love it. Of, <clears throat> First Peter. Oh, here we go. Hermon, meaning sacred. Yes, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Okay. Yep, yep. So yeah, we're just double checking you against Google. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So when Which, Peter utters this, I don't think he simply understands his Exodus story. I think he even understands the Midrash surrounding this occasion, because there's only one. Predates the Gospels, by the way, by about 80 years. Yes. Uh, could be even more, but we have it on record 80 years prior. So it's definitely at play in the world of Peter. Mm-hmm. And I think Peter's like, whoa, this only happens once in all the Midrash. <clears throat> I know what it's all about. This is about us take going to God's holy mountain. It's about us dwelling there. When you read the Psalm, there's all these references to dwelling, catches the Exodus parallels. And I think there's a parenthetical statement, which is either an addition to the manuscript mm-hmm. or, it's the author saying Peter didn't even realize how brilliant he was because it says Peter didn't realize what he was saying. And we always even realize, right. Yeah. We read that. One could say Peter intuitively had something going. Right. Yeah. And it was even deeper than he thought. Right. Right. It was even bigger than he thought. Absolutely. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I really hate the bash, bash Peter thing. And it's really good to get into some depth and go, yeah, yeah. He was, he was intuiting. That's right. And okay, Marty, maybe you can shed a little light on this too, but I've, you know, okay. So we often hear. That's a great pun. I like that. (laughs) We are in the season after epiphany after all. So still it's not late yet. We're just talking about it, but I've heard, right. You've, I've heard this a lot, you know, Galilean folk, they are backwards. They are bumpkins. They get made fun of by the other Jews, but more recently, I've heard people say, no, 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 actually, that's not the truth. They actually are um, a little more uh, intelligent than we give them credit for, more worldly wise. In fact, they'd have to be, right? Because they were at a, in Israel, they were at a, a spot that was a high trading, trading area, a lot of trade going in and out, right? And they knew their text really well. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I would I would say that's totally correct. It all it all depends what you mean. Like words matter, right? Semantics. Sure. Like it all means what you mean when you say somebody is when they're more intelligent or more whatever. Well, okay, because okay, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have the Judeans and you have the Galileans, and the Judeans are just more by the book. They're more sophisticated. They come from a world like in our world. We would think, oh yeah, they're the people that are all college graduates, and they're all educated and they all got white collar jobs and mm-hmm. they've got the sophisticated uh, like default culture. And then you have like the Pacific Northwest <laughs> built on rugged individualism and this backwards blue collar. It's that kind of thing. And it's not to say they weren't cause they were unbelievably devoted. I mean, that was the world that was built by the Hasidim, right? The, these are people that are unbelievably devoted to a radical commitment to their text unbelievably educated in their own way. Yes. And uh, I, I don't even know, I don't even know how, <laughs> how people can appreciate this podcast without the visuals. That. <laughs> That'll be for our Patreon uh, <laughs> subscribers. They'll get the, they can get the video. You guys have to start a Kickstarter or something. I don't know. I listen. <clears throat> so we would resonate with the Galileans, is what you're trying to tell me, Craig, uh, Marty. Craig I and would I would say that as well. Yeah, Marty is more Judean. He's uh, <laughs> <laughs> ultra sophisticated. Well, I mean, he also has that name, Solomon. Solomon, the wisdom of Whoa. Solomon. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Okay, I love it. See, yeah. this is why we have Marty. You get that 
just get that. I mean, we talked about the transfiguration a little bit, but I'm telling you, he just brings he just brings a little oomph to it. I, I so, so, so Marty, get, tell me if this is uh, an accurate read, perhaps just kind of culturally. Um, so Galileans, though they are the they're the laborers, or they're, they're, the, they're the agrarian culture. They're they're more farmers, uh, field workers, livestock, fishing, and so. When I, when I was pastoring in Kansas, we had a lot of folks who would talk about themselves as being, well, I'm not educated. And what they meant is they went to high school, they didn't go to college. But these farmers were brilliant at, you know, fixing a combine, uh, finding ways to do the math in their head about how much fertilizer was needed on their 1,200 acres of wheat. Uh, they, they were brilliant. Uh, and they were raised in a culture that enabled them to do those tasks and not think of themselves as educated, but they were often thought of themselves as uneducated, so they had a little bit of a uh, lower self-esteem. But then others would also talk about them as being backward, as being out in the out in the sticks. Uh, and it was more cultural rather than anything based on edu- educational or academic ability. Right. Yeah, they would have made Mike Rao very proud. Like ah, yes. Yeah. Mike, they would have been. See, this is how sophisticated Marty is. He doesn't even know how to say Mike Rowe's name. Is that what it is? Yes. Listen, look at you. Oh, Cody, you're, you're just trying to poke fun at people. <laughs> yeah. That's the guy who was just dangling a nose ring in front of the screen a moment ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Sophistication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. I've never, I've never been accused of being sophisticated. But, and, you know, when, I, when I'm in this, <laughs> when I'm in this, situation with you gentlemen i i don't know if that fits now i don't know it's it's amazing how closely the words uh sophisticated and sophomoric how they're really closely related (laughs) and we bring them together nicely yes it's all about unity (laughs) okay so transfiguration marty and craig why is that the launching point for lent do you think it is every year the text of the transfiguration gets us prepped it comes right before lent why why transfiguration and then into Lent? Narrative. Narrative. Narrative flow. Okay, so it's all about story. Well, the, the, the story in the Gospels, it becomes this turning point when after the Galilean ministries are coming to some kind of conclusion and Jesus makes this intention to move toward Jerusalem. Uh, and, and Mark, I think, in Mark 8, 9, and 10 makes the most penetrating uh, uh, note about what that turn means because in in Mark eight nine and ten it's about I'm going to go to Jerusalem they're going to reject me they're going to kill me yeah and uh, and what is it somewhere around eight verse thirty and nine verse thirty and like ten verse thirty almost you know kind of in sync with each other yep but but so this this transfiguration is this is great narrative turn mm-hmm. uh, to say okay. this is where we're going but here's what okay but listen bear with me here. Yeah, yeah. Because you're talking about the story and the narrative flow, and in, and we're in Luke for this season. This is your C. C. So we're in Luke. Hey. And uh, um, the transfiguration happens in chapter nine, and then all of a sudden we have to go backwards to his forty days in the wilderness because that's what Lent is built on the forty days in the right. wilderness, and that's right. the first text for the first Sunday in Lent is Luke four, his testing in the wilderness. So why the step backwards then? If it's well, all about the narrative flow. Two steps forward, one step back. Just life. Mm, 
Okay. I don't know if I like that. No, but really, I mean, well, for Lent, it's all about just giving that context of the time in the desert. Okay. Which if you, I would suppose um, that would be, you, you could use that in, in how you go through the Lenten season to say, this is what, what creates that uh, necessary transformative moment to go through to Jerusalem. Right. Yep. Uh, yeah, okay. All right. I like that better. I like that better. You could, um, it's not that, it's not that, um, the desert experience, the wilderness experience for Jesus is foreshadowing of what is yet to come, but it informs what is yet to come. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of like, uh, I definitely think what Craig is saying. It's that it's the turning point in the gospel narrative, maybe not the Lenten narrative, Right. But like from a literary perspective, there are going to be at least one really good case, if not two gospels that place it at the center of what some are going to say is that chiastic or an inclusio structure where it literally forms the middle of where the gospel, not just as a narrative turn, but literally the middle of the literary structure of the gospel itself. So now that you've turned in your gospel, well, what is that turn? That turn is directed towards death. The moment, like like Craig said, you're now turning your face towards Jerusalem. Lent is designed to stripping ourselves down, getting connected with our own brokenness, our own humanity, our own frailty. And so then the likely move is to move to the wilderness and to the desert. The transfiguration turns our head towards, and now we set our Lenten narrative towards doing the thing that the gospel points us towards. Okay. Well, and, and, and another, I think another angle on that whole Lenten journey as well is the 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 texts that texts that get lifted up from the Hebrew Bible tend to talk about restoration of covenant. Uh, they they tend to have this idea of bringing things together towards some kind of completion or towards some kind of healing. And so while it, it does include so, uh, the elements of um, facing the challenge and uh, acknowledging our own humility and, and brokenness and 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 kind of uh, overcoming that once we strip things away, but it also talks about healing and putting things back together. Right. There's this prophetic dream that at the end of this journey, it's not about me being stripped into nothingness. And that's the end of the story. Right. It's about stripping away so that restoration is possible. Ooh. And that brings me to the whole, there's some good questions about fasting in Lent because Right, Lent, most people have a practice, they do some type of fast, which is to strip something away. But it's not just the point. And we talked about this a little bit when we didn't record. So I want to hear a little bit of your uh, takes on this again, because it was good stuff. And I want to try to recapture that a little bit. But it's not so much about, I mean, it is stripping away. But it's not so much about just for punishment's sake or anything, right? Marty, what about fasting? And uh, how do you make, have you, have you practiced fasting? I have practiced fasting, but I really liked what Craig just said. That that was really good. Um, the stripping of the stripping away of things so that healing is possible, yeah. because that's where fasting became a thing for me. I was always raised, and not that this is not that this idea is completely void of meaning or incorrect. But I was raised in a Christian worldview that fasting was always well. It was hardly ever practiced by anybody around me. Right. Um, and then, second of all, when it was practiced, it was very. Well, we don't eat, and then when we're supposed to eat, we pray, or when we don't eat, we're, we pray instead. And it was like really like talked about as a super spiritual experience, which the few random times I experienced it, like with a 30-hour famine in high yeah. school and those experiences, 
it was not that for me. And I felt like, golly, I'm doing this wrong because all I can think about is Krispy Kreme donuts right now. I do not think about God and I don't think about holy things. And why do I feel like, and then I'm, so then I'm reading Brian McLaren and finding my way again or finding our way again, excuse me. And um, he's talking about fasting and he's talking about how what fasting does is it connects you to how ungodlike you are, it connects you to that broken part of your humanity, that limited, finite, frail part of your humanity. And because of that, it does a lot of things. A, it illuminates yeah. things that you need. So that's why when Craig says you strip something away so that something can be healed, well, part of the reason that happens is because I can see it. Because I've stripped enough away, I can finally see something clearly. And the other part of that is, I mean, where does that healing come from? Obviously, we're going to say it comes from the Christ or it comes from God or it comes from and fasting makes me lean that direction mm. because I can't lean on myself. I am, I, like I, am I am of limited resources. Can I, and now that I can see and now that I lean, I can experience healing. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to bust out an analogy or metaphor and you tell me if this connects well, because here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I pictured as you're talking about this, right? The stripping away <clears throat> to get to the healing um, also to understand the parts of us that aren't quite so, right? Okay, so from the beginning, we were made dirt and God's breath, right? So we got these two elements of us in all of us, and that's the complete total package of being a human. So I'm thinking like a, a masterpiece, right? A good artist, um, when a good artist paints, a good artist recognizes the value of the negative space and not to fill that up with stuff because it at some point becomes too much of whatever. And so you need that negative space to actually be complete. Is that a good metaphor? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it is isn't, good. It, isn't it Rob Bell that will talk about the art of elimination? Yeah. Yep. And uh, like sometimes the direction you have to go is not to add anything, but to continue to strip away until the one thing that needs to remain is the only thing that does. Yeah. Henry Nowen's phrase is growth by subtraction. Oof. Good, 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 good. Um, yeah. It's moving against those that, that ironic expectation that somehow nothing is becomes something. Um, it, it, and again, with your illustration from from uh, visual art, also music. You know, the use yeah. of the rest. Yeah, that's right. You got to have those rests. Yep, that's right. They're important. And, and or uh, another visual art one would be like a sculptor. You know, chiseling away the stone. Right. Right. Okay, so, so, so a, a more fashionable thing when it comes to Lent lately has been to focus on, and I do think this is important, right, to not so much delve on the, dwell on the stripping away as the find it, as almost like adding something, right, to have time to do the prayer, the reading, those kind of things, which is good. That's a good point. But at what point does it also become like that's because we're so in our culture like, we don't like the idea of just plain stripping away and we have to fill it up with something and be like productive and all that. What do you think about that? <laughs> so it's almost like people want to soften the blow of the stripping away a little bit, right? You know, because I, I guess you could say, you know, for, for a, 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 I don't want to say a shallow fast, but a fast that doesn't really have that element of stripping away. Mm-hmm that's almost uh, fashionable, you know, yeah. the fashionable fast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, guess I've, I guess I've seen what you're describing in those, you know, where it's actually, I'll put away this one thing, but now I've got time to 
fill my life up with something else. You know, right. I'm eating less don't fewer donuts because during Lent. But does that mean you're now having healthy eating habits, or are you just eating more Snickers? You know, um, it's <laughs> or it's, Hershey's it's, with Reese's Pieces is a new thing. Come on now. Uh, okay, they broke that out just in time for Lent. I, I do not have a sweet tooth normally, but but I think that that's almost the element of addiction. I think mm-hmm. is that um, you know we we set down one thing we're addicted to, but if we have an addictive personality, we're just going to latch onto something else. Yeah, something else. Yep. But that's, my that's the is fasting, however however one fasts, whether it's food or activities or you know whatever it is. My hunch is that we need to be very careful about what is the thing we then engage in. Mm. So if right. fasting leads to acts of justice, compassion, you know, you know, doing some of those things. I think those are those are those are transformative. Yeah. Fasting not, goes, oh, I'm spending less money on food, so now I can go to the movies more. I mean, right, and not missing the stop in between the two either of just stopping to go. Okay, wait, what is this showing me? As I, because we we do in our culture, especially, uh, uh, man, I just feel like I'm picking on evangelical Protestants today. But in the Protestant traditions, I, I'm a, they I have was, given us nothing to poke fun at. Yeah, I know, no, no, it's really, it's been really hard for me to come up it's with. It's kind example. of a pinnacle, the pinnacle of Christian uh, culture. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the the way we talk about it is is like achievement, like fast is like an achievement. Can you do it? And so we just focus on like doing the fast that we can celebrate at the end. We don't actually engage the practice of mm. like stopping to be like, okay, I took this away and now what am I learning about myself? And right. now, so there's a deconstruction, a deconstruction and then a reconstruction and right. not missing or skipping either one of those steps. And, and that mm. reconstructive piece is, is shallow and doesn't feel right if you haven't done the deconstruction. Uh, years ago, Carl and I were at a Russian Orthodox uh, Easter worship service uh, when we lived back in Pennsylvania. You know, wonderful service begins at midnight, dark, uh, just some candles, very somber, beautiful Greek choir just singing these rich and deep creeds. Uh, it was it was it was beautiful and, and mystical, and we enjoyed the fellowship there. Lots of symbolism that we. You know, we're able to grasp and understand. And I understood some of the Greek that was going on. It was it was really very profound. At the end of the service, it was about 3 a.m. And uh, the, the service had ended. And they opened up the back doors. And while everybody had been in worshiping, nobody knew that this incredible banquet table had been set up uh, in the entryway. And it was filled with all these luscious meats and wines and cheeses and desserts and just this you know, it looked like something out of a, like a, like a, some kind of Epicurean magazine, like gourmet or, you know, it was just incredible. And they said, Hey, you're come join us. And I had this terrible feeling like I do not feel like I deserve this because I didn't fast at all. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm sure I could have just enjoyed it just by the gracious gift of it all. But these are the things that these people had resisted for all of Lent. And now they were able to celebrate it. And for me, the celebration didn't click. It just felt awkward. Also, we were tired. It was 3 a.m. <laughs> I don't blame you. Uh, it's almost, guys, like I'm hearing you say, I'm not, I don't want to fast forward to Holy Week, but there's that sense of um, not skipping Holy Saturday to rush forward to Easter Sunday a little bit. Oh, yeah. what we're talking about here. Yeah, There has to be 
a holy Saturday to get to Resurrection Sunday. Okay, I get it. I get it. I like it. Okay, uh, Marty, you when we accidentally didn't record, and I I wish I knew whose fault that was, but I no no not pointing any fingers, but uh, I wish I knew whose fault it was. So we could place that blame nicely. However, you said some things about Jesus's temptations when he was in the desert that connected to the uh, Israelites wandering around in the desert, which I think we all knew and understood the connection to the wandering in the wilderness. Are you sure we're recording right now? A hundred percent positive. Yes. Sorry to interrupt. (laughs) No, it's good. Thanks for checking. But yeah, you made that connection. And I think we know the connections there. Like, okay, yeah, sure. Jesus in the desert, 40, right? Wandering in the, you know, he's there for 40 days. Okay, right. And the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. Okay, all right, sure. We see the connection. But you have even deeper connections to show us. Let's hear it. Uh, well, the, when, when the Jews came out of Egypt and they went across the Red Sea, uh, Jewish tradition has them taking 40 days to get to Mount Sinai and then sitting at the base of Mount Sinai for another 10 days. And so that's where uh, oh, 50. Pentecost comes Pentecost. from, the whole ah. and the Festival of Weeks anyway. Yep. So that during that 40 days on their journey to Sinai, they're tested in the text um, they're tested three times. And in the Hebrew, that's not a pass-fail test. It's not a Western test. It's an Eastern test, which is a God wanting to experience. He's not trying to see what they're going to do. He already knows that. He's God. The, the thing he wants, to, he wants to experience their obedience and or disobedience because um, he wants to do life with them. Mm. And so on their way there, they're tested three times. The Jews have always connected that to the Shema. Um, Will you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might? And they always taught that on their way in the desert, they were tested. God tested their heart, He tested their soul, and He tested their might. And the passages that Jesus quotes are the passages that rabbinically they connect to those things. The oh first God. test being the the bitter water at Mara, mm-hmm. and will you love me? And it was there that the Jews said, according to the book of Deuteronomy, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word. If they would have only trusted in the word, the provision of God, that when they, when God, God knows they need water, and right. when they need water, they'll drink. And if they would have distrusted, if you read that story in Exodus 15, the very end, the last verse is how they walk around the corner from this bitter, one well, one bitter well where the whole community has to drink from. And they walk around the corner and run into 12 wells and 70 palm trees. And this is the region that Moses would have wandered in the whole time when he yeah. was a shepherd. So he knows. <laughs> he either knows or this is some supernatural thing. Okay. But the people of God just refuse. No, we want this water and we want it now. <sighs> and God says, how about you let me teach you? And then, and then the soul and then the, the water from the rock is a test of their soul. And then the third test in rabbinic thought is debated but could be the fight with the amalekites right Mm -hmm. after at rephidim because it's all about power and so what jesus is doing is he's especially in matthew and matthew's account you'll notice in your gospels they're in different orders but in matthew's account they're in the order of the israelites tests and jesus basically goes through all those tests again and this time it's not that he passes it and the jews failed it it's that he says this is what we've learned this is what the story looks like when it's lived out in flesh. Mm, I love it. So. I love it. Very nice. Okay. <clears throat> so a lot of, a lot of connections. And so to me then, 
now it snaps into a little bit more focus and clarity why we go back to the desert before we move on to the rest of Luke. You know, we go Luke 9, then backwards to Luke 4, so we can see the time in the desert, and then we're up to Luke 13, where he's heading towards Jerusalem. In fact, that's what Luke 13 is all about, his sorrow for Jerusalem. That's the text for the second week. The second Sunday in Lent, Craig, is Luke 13, and I see you're leaving. He's got to go. Hi, Craig. I'm ready to take off. Got my first day of track practice today, and... Uh... Well, you know what? And right I, after that, I got to drive to Baker City. Oh man! You know, meet with a church tonight. Okay, Marty and I are going to talk Luke thirteen real quick. All right. And then, uh, then we'll and and Craig, we're going to put up some resources and articles for people on fasting. Well, right? we've got tons of resources that have been saved up here. Yeah, and some so. good country music that is perfect for Lent. We'll talk more about it because they cover all of the season of Lent with our country music. So it'll be okay to talk about it next episode. Excellent. Okay. Hey, see you guys. Hey, stay fresh, cheese bag. <laughs> don't, don't leave me with him, Craig. <laughs> All right, buddy. All right, Luke 13, and I know you know something about this one. I've heard you. I, I've either read something you've written about this or heard you. <laughs> no, I doubt that. <laughs> Fine. Glanced over. Is that better? Is that uh, uh, <laughs> Marty is just trying to seek validation from me right now. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah. Marty, you're a good writer, okay? Uh I like your writing. I do Uh read it. Uh I appreciate it. Okay. Do you have a question question here? Yes. So Luke 13, this is a, he says, um, Pharisees come to him. They say to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And then he, we, he has some lament for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What? It's a short pericope. Huh? You like that? There's a nice big word. Like and, uh, but a lot going on there, isn't there? There, there is. Unpack it for me a little bit. Oh my goodness, which part? There is okay, a lot. Let's start, let's start with the fox statement. Go tell the fox, I will keep on driving out demons, healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I'll reach my goal. I must press on today and tomorrow on the decks for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What's he referring to? Uh, no, let's, let's go back before that. Let's go, let's go to the first verse. Let's oh, go yeah. at, some, at, at, that, at that time. You got to quit moving the screen on me here. At sorry, that, sorry. That, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. I love to point out the fact that Jesus, the Pharisees try to save Jesus's life at least twice. Yep. And this is one of those direct There's no times. good Pharisees though. Come on. Uh, yeah, that was, what's so striking to me is we, we love to just, anyway, nevertheless. Um, so they say, Herod wants to kill you. You got to get out of here. Jesus' response, and then I can't remember if it's in Luke or in another gospel, from this conversation, he moves to Capernaum. Uh-huh. And I've heard Bible teachers like say, yeah, Jesus did. Like Herod wanted to kill him, so Jesus moved to Capernaum. Capernaum is seven miles in the wrong direction. It's right underneath 
Herod's nose because uh, Herod Herod's built as capital is Tiberius. Yes, it's a thirty minute, forty minute walk from Capernaum. Like he's he moves right underneath Herod's nose and says, "Thank you very much." Anyway, so so that's that's thirty one. So then he go tell that fox, which in Jewish thought is this. A fox is, is a fox thinks he's a lion. He acts like he's a lion. Ooh. Is the way the Jews talk about a fox. But he's Ooh. really harmless. But he acts tough. He barks a lot. He runs around like he owns the joint. But he's just a fox. He's not a lion, no matter what he thinks. So, okay. so that's the little name-calling dig that's going on here is Herod. Well, you're, you guys are all scared of Herod. Listen, Herod, he's just a fox. So... Uh, and then the reference to on the third, yeah, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me about that part. Uh, I, I'm still wrestling with that. I, okay. I'm pretty sure that's a remez to a couple different prophets. Uh, I'm wrestling with a, a remez, a, a remez, a connection to Zechariah. Mm. Uh, there could be a couple different things. It could be, I mean, it could be as, as things like Jonah. It could be. It could be a lot of different things, especially when you start looking at the Midrash. But um, we obviously race ahead and think death on the cross and resurrection. Which right. I obviously, mean, isn't that where my mind automatically goes? Yeah, and obviously there's that play there, of course. It's not that Luke's not hinting at that. But what is, if these words came out of Jesus' mouth like that, what was Jesus talking about? He probably wasn't just putting his God goggles on and talking about how he'd be raised in three days. Mm, okay. Um, but yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah, and he, and he just goes on to talk about the corruption of Jerusalem, which leads to the next, I mean, Herod. So when, when Jesus starts having this conversation, you get the impression that he's wanting to speak to the Herodian, Herodian Jews, which would be the party of Herod, okay. the Hellenistic Jews that are, are far from minimalists. <laughs> they, are, they, they love their running water. They love their luxury and their leisure. They're, they, they're wealthy. They're, not that any of that is a bad thing, but Greek, that is... Greek world. culture has been kind to them. Absolutely. Uh, it's the Sadducee, and, and it's, it's the opposite of the Pharisee worldview. It's the Sadducee worldview. Okay. And so he critiques Jerusalem because it's that corrupt, it's that wealthy corruption that's where all the prophets die because the prophets can't come in here and speak against Jerusalem. You get yourself killed. Right. And Luke puts that utterance in a weird spot, unlike yeah. the other gospels, because he ties the Jerusalem, Jerusalem conversation. And I love the brilliance of Jesus because he uses culture yep. to speak to him because how, how, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings you were not willing. That's a line straight out of a play, uh, Trojan Women by Euripides. What? Um, written in 70 BC. One of the, oh. the most shown play over the next two centuries of Rome, Greco-Roman culture. I did not know that. Um, yeah. He's, he's basically just ripping it right out of the end of Euripides. Um, <laughs> it's one of the earlier manuscripts where it shows up but, of that play. But uh, yeah, he just, he, he rips. It'd be like quoting Game of Thrones or... <laughs> You Hellenists, you love your your TV and your movies and your. So I'm going to use that worldview to speak to you the truth of what you need to. And Luke ties those. He Luke ties Herod, the corruption of Helen of the Hellenistic leadership, and the sorrow of Jerusalem. He ties it all together. And if this is uh, what I'm hearing you say is a Lenten passage, yep, for you, mm -hmm. uh, that would be 
that would be a convicting read this year in in the C year Ooh. because we are we are we are Hellenistic Jesus followers. <gasps> how Charity. dare you! I don't care how much Marie Kondo we watch. How uh, dare you! I know, but uh, so, okay, so give okay, okay. So you're gonna drop that. Uh, and I got to tell you, man, right now you are being very undued. All right. Undude. I like Und- that. Okay. <laughs> undude. So talk to me. How are we Hellenistic Christians? And in what sense? Do you mean just I, we watch some TV and movies? What? I believe we may have a consumerism problem. Okay. I, I believe that'd be a fair statement to make. I believe we think that we can have our Jesus spirituality and everything else. And that doesn't mean that we can't, but I think we belong to a worldview very similar to the Hellenistic Jews in that they said, oh, I can have Caesar and I can have Adonai. I can have wealth and I can be obedient. I can, and we can, we can have all these things, but that is the challenge of the Hellenistic worldview. The Herodians weren't exempt, like they they were allowed in the kingdom of God, like they're welcome. Yeah, wealthy people are all over the scriptures. Like throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Exactly. But it is a a consu- when you start bowing down, you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't, like if we have a consumerism problem, we do. And I'm not going to sit here and critique. Like I love the whole. Like I really do. I'm not. I'm not trying to throw easy stones at the whole Marie Kondo fad right now. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, it's easy, but I'm not trying to do that because I actually love so many pieces yeah, of that. But at right. the same time, we also are like, oh yes, I'm going to actually, <laughs> I'm going to use my Jesus to feed my consumerism rather than the other way around. Like that's really what it is. Like and that's what the minimalism fad becomes. Like when what we really have to get to is the heart of the. We, we have to get to the heart of the issue. It's not about whether or not you've got the right amount of things or the right stuff. It's about whether or not, I mean, the whole, so, so the quote from Euripides that yeah. Jesus is quoting here, it comes at yeah. the end of the play. Okay. As Troy is burning, the main character stands on the stage, Troy burning behind her. And she says, Troy, Troy, speaking for the emperor, how I long to gather you as a chick gathers... So I was your deliverance. I was your rescue, but you refused to have me oh. as your, you, you refused to be my vassal and look what it got you. And as Jesus quotes this, I think the context is here. I'm here to, especially in Luke, Ugh. like I'm here to save you from this Herodian nonsense. I'm oh, wow. here to save you from empire. And I think today Jesus would be like, I'm here to save you from your smartphone. <laughs> But you won't have me. And I'm not saying get rid of your smartphones. I love my iPhone. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. But I think there's, uh, as we sit in Lent, yes. I think, well, I, think, I think far too many of us, including myself, got nervous when I said, we think we can have Jesus and our smartphone. We immediately huh. went, I can. Thank you. Very, well, that, that is the part yeah, of us. I have my Bible app on it, dude. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's the part of us that we have to break down in Lent. Yeah. We have to ask questions, and it doesn't mean we all get rid of everything. No, right. We ask ourselves. It's more about a mindset and a setting than it is about the item itself, per se. Yeah. It's about coming to grips with the things that are killing our soul Yeah, so that we can find the things that give us life and not necessarily spark joy, but (laughs) life. Oh, boy. Uh, Marie Kondo. 
you're welcome to come on to the show and debate the Rebbe anytime. <laughs> uh, I love I love the whole condo stuff. Let's do it. Let's get it. Let's go through our closets. <laughs> and, uh, and at the end of that whole season, we'll have an episode on going through our spiritual closet. Ooh, I love it. Actually, Marty, I was thinking we may need to, and maybe during the middle of Lent, this would be a good time to do it, but we need to have an episode of just hearing some, um, uh, a, like a primer on rabbinical uh, uh, slang, or lingo. Okay, it, sure. Yeah, yeah, so we can, because you mentioned Ramez, you mentioned some other things. Don't tell us now. Yeah. Let's do, uh, let's do, uh, let's do an episode on that a little bit. Unpack a few terms. He who has ears, let him hear. I love it. All right, Marty. Since Craig isn't here, I guess uh, I'll be saying goodbye to you. And uh, you know what, buddy? Stay fresh, cheese bag. Stay fresh, cheese bag. I like, uh, okay. Hey, right back at you. <laughs> that's, yeah. my new, that's, my, <laughs> that's my new sign off. You like yeah. it? Uh, no. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, you got to test it out, right? Sure. You got to test it out, see how it tests with the audience. All right. I'm not, I'm not sure you do. I'm not sure you do have to test that out, but hey. <laughs> Too late, I did. <laughs> I did it, and you know what? I, I, I don't even feel weird about it. Well, good. Well, <laughs> shalom to you, too. Thank you, Marty, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, you got it. Oh, next and week? Well, I, I, I can't commit to that. Why? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you'll see me next week. Okay. I'm going to be the guest that shows up every now and then. Okay, and that's fine. We'll, we'll do that. We will work your name into the intro for the episode you are on here. Is that all right? All right, you got it. You send okay. me an invitation. I'll see if I'm available. <laughs> okay, perfect, man. Thanks, Marty. Yep. Bye. Bye.